listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. All right, have you, if you have your Bibles, please turn with us to Luke chapter 7. We're going to jump back into the book of Luke this week and continue on our journey through the book of Luke until God decides to interrupt us with something different. So Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking at two different stories from verses 1 clear through 17. Um, So I just want to remind us as we start, just kind of, and I know that we've been shifting your your thinking pattern here a little bit from week to week as we spent some time looking at uh, refining our discipleship groups. Um, But as we jump back into the book of Luke, I just wanted to remind you that Luke is writing this to Theophilus, right? And he is writing it, as verse 4 tells us, that you and me, Theophilus is who he's writing it to, and for all of us, that we may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so far, some of the things that we have been taught are all, of course they are, they're centered around Jesus. His identity as fully God and fully man. His purpose to proclaim good news to the poor. His teaching on love and and his teaching and showing his authority by healing people and different things. So what Luke is doing is he's trying to, to tell one person, Theophilus, this is why you can have certainty about the things you've heard about Jesus. And he's also doing that for us as well. And the one other thing that we should keep in mind as you see the, the title page, um, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All. Another thing that Luke is trying to cross the barriers is show that, that the Gospel is, is more um, for everybody, not just the Jewish people. So we should keep that in mind that the Gospel is for all people. And as we turn to chapter 7, we will see as we walk through this chapter, two basic main themes that we're going to pull out and look at over the next three weeks. And the first one is faith. The faith of the centurion here at the beginning of chapter 7 and faith of the prostitute at the end of chapter 7. And the second theme that we see here in chapter 7 as we take time to walk through it is this a question that occurs at the very end of the chapter. And it kind of goes right along with the theme of the book, right? It's this question, who is this Jesus? I mean, that's what Theophilus, I mean, that's what Luke is doing for Theophilus. He's trying to say, okay, I've heard some things about this Jesus dude. Are they real? And he's like, yeah, let me show you and tell you the stories, the ones that I went and researched and, and talked to people about. Let me show you that, yeah, this man, Jesus, he is truly who he says he is. So, one theme throughout chapter 7 is faith, and the other theme is this question, who is Jesus? Which we're really going to see next week when John is sitting in prison thinking, you know, like, are you sure that he's the one that came, or is there, should we be looking for somebody else, right? So that's kind of the, the, the broad picture of chapter 7 as we begin to dive into it. So let me pray for us, and um, we'll look at what the Lord has for us. Father, we thank you again um, for your word. Father, as we start chapter 7, we look at these two stories of the wonderful authority and power of Christ, of, of healing someone and raising someone from the dead, Father. Lord, within that is, is framed a humble faith. A humble faith from not a Jew, but a Gentile. In fact, from someone that many people in that time 
would really not look very well of a Roman soldier. Lord, I pray that as we see today the humble faith that is required to bring us from death to life, that Lord, as, as we see today as Jesus pursues and shows compassion on these people, because we have been shown that compassion, I pray that we will go and show others that compassion today as well in each and every day. Father, help us to be those people. Help us to walk as your disciple. We ask that in Jesus' name. Now, the two stories that we're going to look at today brings to the forefront a topic that most of us try to keep in the back, right? We, we, we don't really want to think about it. There are sometimes there's events and things in our life that happen that, that really brings, us, brings it right to the, to the forefront, and that topic is death. Like, it's, it's not something that we, we want to think about, but we know it's sometimes it's lingering. Sometimes we go through events and, and we actually reflect and see, oh, no, what, what could have happened? Or maybe we have loved ones that have passed and we, we are brought to that point and we see this eternal thing that is facing every single one of us. And that is death. The Bible calls it our biggest fear. Even though that fear, as I said, that it's not always in the forefront, it's kind of simmers in the background all the time. Because it is a fear. Because we know that we, we are not eternal, but thankfully that because we are in Christ, that's different for us. In fact, Vaughn Roberts, a well-known pastor in the UK, tells about a, a friend's funeral that he oversaw, that he spoke at. And this friend, he was only 41 when he passed. And he was a very successful banker. The day after everyone, and this is kind of what happened to this young, young man's life at 41, is they found out that he had terminal cancer. And he didn't last very long. His dying friend said the irony is when he went to visit him after hearing the news that just last week I paid off my mortgage. And I know that many of you who step into that process, you know, that, that's a wonderful day when you finally actually own your home, right? The bank doesn't own most of it or, or part of it, but do you actually own it? So here's this man who, who just turned 41, very successful, and he goes to the doctors, he gets his terminal cancer, and he's going to pass very soon. And at the funeral, many of his successful friends in business were there. And Pastor Roberts addressed the audience. And at one point, he posed this question, and it's the question I ask you today. Do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with your death? Do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with your death, that will remove that fear that will take away that angst that we have that many times leads us to go and worship idols and different things of this world and things that we want to hold on to so tightly. Do you have a philosophy of life that can deal with your death? Because we know that 100% of us is going to experience at least death in this world from this body. And the Christians, those are who are believers in Christ, those who are in Christ can say humbly and gratefully, yes. Yes, I do have a philosophy in life that, that can take care of, of my death because of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus? He is the Lord over sickness and death. 
That's who this Jesus is. That's who we are putting our hope in. That's who we're putting our trust in. That's my philosophy. I trust in him and he will take care of that. Because as as we will see today, only Jesus has the power over sickness and the death and the compassion to enter into our lives. It's only Jesus that can bring us out of that. We will also see that only faith gives us the hope to cope with our death. Only faith gives us the hope to cope with our death. So we're going to begin here in, in Luke 7, 1 through 2. We're just going to walk through the story, and I'm going to kind of use the second story as an illustration to, to make a point. So no, we're not going to kind of verse by verse. This is narrative, so we're going to more look at the, the plot and the theme of the story. And usually whenever you're reading narratives, and you're reading the narratives, especially in the Gospels or in the Old Testament, a lot of times the point that God is trying to make for us is through the conversation. Many times, sometimes not, but sometimes, many times it is through that conversation. So as you're reading narrative, as you're reading stories of the Bible, and you come across, you know, conversations between people, you need to kind of pause and just reflect on them and see if, if this is the point of what God is trying to show you in, in this story. I mean, there's one small conversation that kind of frames that it is when Jesus is astonished at this man's faith. He's astonished that his faith. And that kind of drives the, the theme of, of what this passage might be speaking about. So as we pick up the story here in verse 1, after he had finished, now again, this is, he just got done teaching, doing all that teaching on the plane, right, that, that there in, in, in chapter 6. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So a centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of about 100 people, since the name centurion, right? Probably like a third or fourth tier leader within the Roman government, right? He Meaning that there were people he had authority over, and there's people that had authority over him. So he's kind of sandwiched in here. So he's, he's kind of a, a high up authority, but not way up there, right? So kind of like if you think of... in. This might like only fall on a couple people, but like kind of like a captain in our today's army, where where you know the captain has many people above him and he has people below him. So this is this um, Roman soldier, this centurion that we're going to be looking at and talking about this morning. We already begin to see that this man was maybe a bit different than the picture of a Roman soldier. I mean, if you think about Roman soldiers, like many times it's played out that they are harsh and cruel and and rightfully so. They're they're men of war. Right? And oftentimes, the, the Jews, because they've been occupied by the Romans, they really, really don't like these people. Because they enforce the Roman law, and, and they continue um, to enforce those rules that the Romans come, and it kind of contradicts for what God wants them to do. So we see this man is a bit different. He's, he's typically, um, you know, like I said, a, a man of war, harsh, but he's showing compassion to this servant of his. We continue in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. That's astonishing. Here, he's a, a Roman soldier. He's not a Jew. But yet he hears about this man named Jesus. And so he sends the elders of the Jewish synagogue to go. You guys go and plead with Jesus to come and heal my servant. He says, Jesus, will you have compassion on my servant? That's what he's asking. Notice there is no doubting in this request. There's no, 
maybe if you can or if you have time or if you will. No, will you come and heal? He has no doubt that Jesus can change the path of his servant's life. No doubt whatsoever. I mean, do we have that kind of faith in Christ? Do we trust him that much that it's, you know, we know it and we trust it and we can walk in it? His servant was in trouble. So he sent these men to ask Jesus to heal. Interesting thing is the word here for healing is part of a word group, like the root word of it in the Greek that means carrying someone through a dangerous ordeal. In many ways, sometimes it's it's broken off to be used as the word salvation. Will you heal him? Will you help him through this dangerous ordeal? The centurion plea is a physical request that points to a deeper spiritual reality. It reminds us that everyone needs the saving work of Jesus Christ. Everybody needs the saving work of Jesus Christ. Who else can deliver us from death? Who else can deliver us from death? Who else can carry us through our last ordeal and bring us safely to the other side? Many of you are sitting here right now are walking through an ordeal in life. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in Him? He's the only one that's going to get you through and He will never, ever let you down. Never let you down. Who else can carry us through? The only hope for meeting the dying and desperate need of lost humanity is the life that comes through Jesus Christ. As we suffer the sickness of sin, that sickness, by the way, that leads to death, we should ask him to come with all the grace of a saving cure. The centurion asked Jesus for help in true military fashion, did he not? <laughs> he didn't go. He sent some people to go, right? As I said, he had some people under him, and actually he, he just reached out and requested some, to some people that he befriended, so those that he has helped and, and loved, which we're going to learn here in a minute. He delegated the task to others, asking some of his Jewish friends to go and speak on his behalf. Their conversation with Jesus shows the contrast between apparent worthiness and the actual unworthiness of a person who desires to be blessed by God. So as you see how how the the, the Jewish people come and they talk to Jesus, these Jewish elders, and they're going to show, they're going to kind of make an argument or a claim for his worthiness. And then later on we're going to see what the centurion says about himself. And what we're going to show and see is the contrast between worthiness and unworthiness and where truth faith lies. And where true faith lies. In verse 4, we pick up the conversation. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. Here, they're making a case. He is worthy to do this. Why is he worthy for you to come and do this for him? For he loves our nation, the Jewish nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So this man took his own money to build them a place to worship. So he's, you can see that he's not quite your typical Roman soldier that we might think of. Apparently God must have been working on his heart in some way. He's befriended these Jews. He's even built their synagogue. Here is an occupying soldier who, instead of holding this Mediterranean country in contempt, actually loves the Jewish nation. Right? Because you know that he has to allow them to do some things that's against what the Romans want them to be doing. He doesn't hold them into contempt. He shows them grace. And now what is he doing? He's asking Jesus to come and show 
grace. So does that obligate Jesus to do so? No, it does not. It doesn't obligate him to save us just because we've done X, Y, and Z. This man was not a native of Israel, but he had to come to love the land and the people. And he became so much involved in their affairs that he built them a synagogue. The centurion had a tender heart. He had power. And he was wealthy. He actually supported God's people. This is a good person, right? There's no doubt that Jesus is going to come up with that resume. See, these elders were thinking in terms of merit. They believed someone who lived a good life was worthy to receive blessing. This is the way most people think. This is the way we think. It is a basic presupposition of our fallen nature. I mean, if I could just do a couple good things, or if I do just good enough things, or worse yet, what we often do is, well, I'm better than that person, so I'm doing pretty good. We've all done that. We're all guilty of that. Thankfully, we could run to the cross and ask for forgiveness. We tend to think that people who do good things for others deserve to have good things done for them. Some people apply the same logic to life after death. They believe that if they do enough good, they will be entitled to heaven. I chose that word purposely. Entitled to heaven. Entitled to heaven. They hope that somehow the good they do will outweigh the bad and that God will receive them in the basis of what they have done. This is not the way God operates. This is not how God operates at all. In our pride, we believe that we can do, be good enough for God. We can be good enough. But who is ever good enough for God according to his standards? His good, righteous, holy standards. Especially when it comes to our eternal destiny. As it was read today, the Bible says that salvation is not your own doing. This is what Ephesians tells us. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, salvation has to be the gift of God, because otherwise we would take the credit for ourselves. Besides, God's standards is a holy perfection. It is not enough to make friends with good people. It is not enough to to go to church or give money to Christian causes or get involved in ministry. What God requires is perfect righteousness. By that standard, no one is worthy. No one except the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if God is to help us, it will never be because of our merit, but only because of his mercy. And he has wonderful amount of mercy. I want us to see that. That it is God pursuing us. It's God coming after us. And show the compassion of our Lord and Savior. Jump with me to verses 11 through 15. And this kind of illustrates a picture of how this happens. This is us. Like What Ephesians tells us is we do not seek God before God seeks us. In the way that he seeks us is through the word of God and the spirit of God that changes our hearts. As he changes our hearts, then we will respond to him. But Romans 1 clearly lays out, right, that we 
seek after worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That we are fallen. If you keep reading in Romans, it paints a, a grim picture of our hearts. But that's not the end because we, we do get to Romans 8, right? We get to Romans 8. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is salvation through Christ. But let's read this, this story in, in verses 11 through 15. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Name, and his disciples and, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This is a very, very sad story. A widow has lost a son. This is kind of like double jeopardy. Because not only has, is she filled with grief because she lost her son, but being a widow back in, widow back in first century, that was dire, dire place to be. It was a dire place to be. I mean, if you just think about back to the, if you've read the story of Ruth and the dire needs that those widows were in. But thankfully, God had compassion on them too. Jesus noticed the crowd who was escorting the body to the tomb. Nobody went to Jesus and asked. Jesus just showed his compassion. And he had compassion for the widow. This is our Lord and Savior, abundantly compassionate. Then he did something again that is astonishing for the crowd around him. Then he came up, verse 14, and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. If you remember that one of the things that would defile a camp would be a dead person. So here Jesus is again moving in to touch something which is defiled. But just like we saw when Jesus touched the leper, he didn't become defiled. He healed the man. And same way in this case, just because Jesus touched the dead person, he didn't become defiled. The dead man rose. He came back to life. Verse 15 says, And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus, full of compassion, moved towards this man and reached out, and because he was all, has all authority under heaven, he raised this man from the dead. He raised him from the dead. He did the same for you and me, brother and sister. That's why it's called being born again. He raised us from the dead. He gave us new life. We are now new creatures in Christ. We are just like this man. Ephesians tells us as much. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Through the power of the proclamation of the gospel, this is the compassion of God. Do you understand that, that whenever you share the gospel with someone, you are showing the compassion of Christ and you are acting out the compassion of our God? That you are, you're doing the one thing that the Holy Spirit can use to change a heart from dead to alive. It's not about what good things you do. It's, that's why Paul says the power is in the gospel. 
I, I know that talking with, with Tim a, a little bit, he, he's just like, man, because we spoke right after service. And, and he was kind of like, you know, I, I, I thought Sam touched on some things. And then Sunday morning, you touched on some things that I'm going to talk about on Sunday night. And I rejoiced. I was like, awesome. We're all preaching the same gospel. Amen. And you know what? We need to hear it over and over and over again. Because we'll walk out that door and life will come at us and we'll forget it. The wonderful good news of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. He had compassion. And you can share that compassion. You can give that compassion to people by sharing the good news of what Christ has done. It's just amazing, not my plan, I don't think I would design it this way, that he allows us to be part of that. In fact, he expects us to be part of it. In fact, he has called us to be part of that. To proclaiming the good news. God sent his spirit into our heart, causing you and me to be born again from death to life. And nowhere, nowhere in that process can we boast. We are not worthy. We cannot do enough good. We must have faith. And that's exactly what we see with the centurion. Let's jump back and pick up where we left off in verse 6. And Jesus went with them. He went with these Jewish elders. Just like the widow's son and just like you and me. With great compassion, he set off with the elders to find the centurion. The desire of his saving heart is to rescue people from sickness, sin, and death. He came to seek and save the lost. Except in this case, he, he never got there. We pick it up when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Apparently, the centurion had second thoughts. Earlier, he sent a delegation to persuade Jesus to come and help. But now a messenger had returned to say that Jesus was on his way. Possibly the messenger had also reported, and I'm, again, I'm just speculating here. Possibly the messenger had also reported what the elders had said to Jesus. That the centurion was worthy of his help. He was worthy of his help. But the more he thought about it, the more the centurion realized that he was unworthy. Can't even be in the same building together. In fact, he did not even deserve to have Jesus walk into his house. Here we see the absolute contrast between the apparent worthiness and the actual unworthiness of a man who seems to lead a good life. Because all those good things he did didn't change. But when he's, when he's confronted with Jesus and who he is, he sees that he's not worthy. Everyone else thought the centurion deserved whatever help he was getting or whatever help he needed. He was a good man. He cared for his servants. He gave a lot of money to the local congregation. Surely such a man was entitled to some kind of special consideration. But the grace of God. But by the grace of God. The centurion saw himself as he really was. And see, brothers and sisters, we cannot be saved until we truly see who we really are. That we truly can't do nothing to separate the gap between us and God. Where we truly see who we are. 
He knew that. He was not worthy at all. Not compared to Jesus. He was not even worthy to be under the same roof. How do you see Jesus? And how do you see yourself today? Because even though that you might be in Christ and you're saved, and I want to keep reminding of that, that you're a child of God, at some point, point in time you do got to actually reflect upon who you really are, and then you will actually see how big and wonderful the grace of God actually is. You'll start seeing Jesus for who he truly is. One of our, our, our brothers that are, are taking elder class, that is, it is like his drumbeat to tell everybody just how big and how wonderful Jesus Christ is. And I am so thankful for him for doing so. Because I'm sure he's done it for your life as you bumped into him. I am so thankful that he reminds you of just how wonderfully awesome Jesus is. How do you see Jesus? And how do you see yourself? The two questions are connected. Because when you see Jesus as he really is, in all his splendor, we also see our true spiritual need. We are, as Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, we're poor in spirit. We're poor in spirit. We, we know that we're beggars. And that, that opens the floodgates for being able to, to understand that we're forgiven and we no longer have to walk in guilt. We no longer have to walk in shame. We don't have to hide. Yeah, that's, that's who I am. But you know what? I'm also a child of God. I, I'm forgiven. And that'll open your heart to people and watch people change because you are sharing just who you are and how awesome your God is that saved you. And when we see ourselves as we really are, and honestly, when we do that, all we're doing is we're, we're actually just seeing ourselves as God already sees us. And it's a good reminder because he sees all the junk. Even all the, the junk that you're still hiding from your spouse or your best friend or someone in your D group, he sees all that and he still loves you unconditionally and will never stop loving you. That's the gospel. That is wonderful good news. The way that God sees us in, in all the unworthiness of our sin, we see the supreme worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the worthy Son of God. He is the beginning and the end, the creator of the universe, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. He is the mighty supreme ruler of heaven and earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the holy name of God who was slain for our sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead for our justification, and who now deserves all honor, blessing, glory, and power. If that is who Jesus is, then who are we? The answer is that we are needy sinners who do not even deserve the grace of God. But he gave it to us anyway. We must never forget the unworthiness of our sinful nature or the unrighteousness of the sins that we commit against God. I know this is said often, but I, as we learned last week, that the only thing that happens that helps us to fight sin is a greater affection. It's for us to have a greater affection. 
And the only way that we're going to have a greater affection is when we truly see who Christ is. And the only way, the only way, this is how God designed it. This is not Joe. This is not some other person. This is how God designed it. The only way that we truly see how awesome Christ is is to see, unfortunately, how miserable we are and how sinful we are. But we do so under the grace and mercy of Christ. We do so knowing that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And we develop and we build this greater affection that helps us to fight our sin. Seeing this contrast helps us to see who we are in the splendor of Christ. If we are poor, proud of who we are and what we have accomplished, then we can never be saved. Because the Word of God says, God opposes the proud. That's a scary place to be. That's 1 Peter 5 5. But God also gives grace to the humble. And when we admit that we do not even deserve to be saved, we are ready to receive God's mercy in Christ. We are ready to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am not even worthy to come into your presence, but I believe the promise of your word that in the blood of your cross, there's enough grace for Joe. There's enough grace for you. There's enough grace for that person that you think is so far away from God that there's no way they'll ever. Yes, they will. If God chooses to show compassion on them. So keep preaching the gospel to them. Keep showing them. Keep loving them. We must have faith. We must believe a humble faith. And this is what the centurion chose. He shows us in verses 7 and 8. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man sent under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, one go and he goes and the other come and he comes into my servant. Do this and he does it. In other words, he said, I know how authority works. And by the way, it's neat how he picked up that Jesus is under someone else's authority. The Father has given him authority to do these things through the power of the Spirit. It's neat how he picked that up, or Luke picked it up, maybe. One of the reasons the centurion had this faith is that he knew how authority operates. As an officer in the Roman army, he was used to, to giving orders and then having them obeyed. All he had to do was say the word, and his soldier would carry out his commands. And the centurion knew how authority... Well, there was a chain of authority all the way up to Caesar... In other words, he knew how this authority worked. He knew that there was people above him and people below him. Somehow the centurion knew that Jesus Christ had the same kind of authority. He may not have known that Jesus was God the Son. Presumably he could not define the doctrine of the Trinity or explain how the the words of the Son were backed by the full authority of the Father. But the centurion knew that Jesus had power over the physical needs of human body. He heard about that and he trusted in that. He believed in that. As far as he was concerned, the miracles of Jesus proved that he spoke with almighty authority. All Jesus had to do is say the word. And his wish was creation's command. When Jesus heard the confidence the centurion had in the authority of his word, he was totally amazed We read this in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel 
Not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. That he believed so much that he didn't even think that Jesus had to be there. He just said, you have so much authority. You are the Son of God. All you have to do is speak it and it will happen. It was because of the man's humble faith that Jesus healed his servant. Luke assures us that when, in verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What trust the centurion had in Jesus? All Jesus had to do was say one single word, and a man's health was restored. It was one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever performed. He did not even go to the man. He just said the word at a distance. But by the time everyone went home, the servant was fully recovered. By the same word that once created the universe out of nothing, and that now brings sinners from darkness into light, Jesus delivered a centurion's servant from death. He did this because the centurion trusted in his power to heal. He had faith. But we see that it was a humble faith because he's like, I'm not even worthy to be in the same building as you. This serves as an example of basic principle for our salvation. We will not be healed by the worthiness of our works, but only by the trust of our faith. Not by the worthiness of our works, but only by the trust of our faith. Believing the word of Christ brings salvation. Do you believe that today? And if you do believe it today, let me go back to Marty's message. Are we doers of the word? Jesus has called you to be the one speaking his powerful word to others so that they may be brought from death to life. Who are you pursuing? Do you, are you ready to give an account for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus? Who are you pursuing? And do you believe it today? Do you believe this wonderful, compassionate Christ? Do you believe in him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Most of all, we thank you for the work of Christ. Lord, thank you that he has so much compassion. The Lord, that even in our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, not only did he come out of heaven in order to, to go to the cross for us, Lord, but right now he is praying at the right hand of the Father for us. He loves us dearly. He has so much compassion for his children. Father, help us see that today. Lord, if there's one here that does not know you, Lord, I pray as they heard what Christ has done, that, Lord, that your spirit has changed their hearts so that maybe they see you for who you truly are. And on the flip side, Lord, that they truly see what desperate situation they are in. Father, I pray that they would turn and trust in you. And Lord, I pray for those that are sitting here that might be in the, in the middle of a mess. Lord, I pray that they would trust in you, knowing that you love them dearly and care for them dearly.
And Lord, I also pray that you will help us become people who know the wonderful gospel and are willing to go and share it with those around us who are lost, who are dying and going to hell. And you have given us this wonderful good news. And I pray that we will proclaim it boldly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.